2: We're in the studio. Yes, we are. Yes, we're in the studio. The
3: studio slash our office, but also the studio. Yes.
2: Yes. Okay. Okay. So we are in our home, <laughs> but now th- this has become uh, just the studio. Now.
3: Yes, this is our studio.
2: Okay. Cool. Did you bring your gun?
3: I always bring my gun. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know that. You didn't know that I'm a massive gun owner. <laughs> I've been keeping guns in our house this entire time.
2: Show me one. <laughs> Show me just one.
3: Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks.
2: And I am the unarmed Carolina Hidalgo.
3: (laughs) And welcome to the conclusion of our series on the Ramones. So when we last left the Ramones, their fourth album, Road to Ruin, had failed to produce the hit single that the Ramones had always believed they were capable of recording. Just like every album they'd released previous.
2: Yes. <laughs> it's it's kind of sad, but as you know, as we know, the well-known adage is, uh, it's possible to fail and not make mistakes. That is not a weakness.
3: No, it's not a weakness that at all. That is life. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what happened with the Ramones. They didn't make any mistakes. They were always true to themselves. They always released great songs. But that hit single just wasn't coming. Now after their second album, Leave Home, the Ramones had gotten a phone call from a certain record producer who guaranteed that if they worked with him, they'd have that hit. And that same phone call came from that producer after Rocket to Russia and Road to Run. It was a pattern. Album phone call. Album phone call. And every single time, this producer told him that he, and only he, knew how to unlock the secret hit-making potential of the Ramones. And it all had to do with the voice of Joey Ramones. So, after the familiar disappointment of Road to Ruin, the Ramones figured, what the fuck? Let's give this little fucker a shot. And they finally said yes to working with legendary producer Phil Spector.
4: There's a story. I want you to
3: fucking gorgeous just like all of phil Spector's early work
2: yeah i mean that this is finally time it's time for phil specter the hit maker yeah right because i mean he was an iconic record producer who influenced the direction of pop music at that time well really of all time really if you think about it
3: yeah i mean everything flows from phil specter like he was the guy that got the girl groups together you know the ronettes the crystals back in the early days and he really Made them sound the way they sounded in his brain, which was absolutely fucking beautiful.
2: Yes. He's one of those like uh, genius guys. Like, uh, you know, he started out like as a teenager. And then by the time he was 21, he he already co-founded his own record label.
3: That's insane.
2: I know. He was the boy genius. You know, he worked with, like you said, the Ronettes, the Crystals. Uh, He worked with uh, Tina Turner and uh, oh, the Righteous Brothers. You Mm -hmm. know, you lost that loving feeling.
3: That was the Phil Spector tune.
2: Oh, so good, too. And he was famous for his like wall of sound technique, which is like very Wagner influenced. You know, it's like make it epic, make it symphonic. Go big, go hard.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Wall of Sound, if you've ever heard the name Phil of Spectre, Wall of Sound is the next thing that you hear about him. But it's not a wall of sound in that it's overwhelming. It all makes sense, but it is epic. As you said, it it makes There Is No Other Like My Baby sound absolutely epic. Da-do-ron-ron, you know, (laughs) which is not, you know, just nonsense words. Uh, But it sounds uh, almost otherworldly. Like nobody, music didn't sound like that before Phil Spector.
2: No, of course not. And he also did the thing where he just kind of just crammed in as many musicians as he could. Mm -hmm. Just all of them in the studio, like dozens of them. Like, and, and, but that worked. It's for some reason, it just worked.
3: Because he was a genius. He was able to take all of these different sounds, all of these different musicians, all of these different layers, and make them into a single cohesive unit, which is insanely difficult to do. I mean, hell, most people can't take a fucking drummer, bassist, and guitarist and singer all in one room and make it sound like a cohesive unit. But this guy was able to take so many different musicians and put it together into something that changed the face of. Pop music forever, you know, ways that are still reverberating today. But there's a price for that genius. <laughs> <laughs> How much? Uh, the lives of at least one person. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the thing is about Phil Spector is that at this point in the late 70s, when Phil Spector was talking to the Ramones over and over and over again, Everybody knew Phil Spector was a nut bar.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds delicious.
3: <laughs> and he had a long history of being not just difficult, but at times recklessly dangerous.
2: Yeah, because remember all those artists that we uh, just name checked? Almost every single one of them has a heroin Phil Spector store.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like a dangerous, like, I almost died Phil Spector store.
4: Yes,
2: like his wife. Yes. You know, who had to literally run away barefoot to get away from him. Uh, also, when he was working with John Lennon, his gun went off in the studio while John Lennon was recording his rock and roll covers album in 1973. He had to go home too. <laughs> and he just sent someone's like, just give me the tapes back, which took years. And then there was a time that uh, uh, Phil famously pulled a gun on Leonard Cohen when they were recording a Death of a Ladies Man album. Leonard said that one time in the studio, Phil came over to him and put his arm around Leonard with a pistol in his hand, pointing it to Leonard's neck. Jesus. And he said, Leonard, I love you. <laughs> and just Leonard just like pushed the gun away and said, I hope you do. <laughs> You ever remember the first time you said, I love you, <laughs> drinking Manischewitz wine, putting a pistol to their neck, you, know, uh, you know, the,
3: the, the romance, the way for friendships and relationships are truly formed.
2: Threatening to kill a musical legend. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and when Phil was asked, like why he would pull all these like crazy antics with, you know, with his guns and everything, you know what he said once he goes, you know, the problem None of these people have the same sense of humor as I do. <laughs> and this wasn't just musicians. It was like women. Yeah. It was parking lot attendants. I mean, this he had a rap sheet, a long one, too. And, of course, the famous fairly recent event uh, when Phil Spector was convicted of murdering actress Lana Clarkson in his home in 2003. And this is the crazy thing. And when Johnny Ramone heard about the whole Lana Clarkson thing, he actually said... I'm surprised that he didn't shoot someone every year. <laughs> so, so he had he has a reputation.
3: He very much does, yeah. And so Phil Spector, uh, his whole thing with guns is because he thought it was funny.
2: I don't know. It, yeah. yeah, maybe <laughs> it's it's so hard to explain it because Phil Spector was dealing with a lot of untreated mental illness, yes, addiction, uh, insecurity, paranoia. I mean, he wore lifts in his shoes. He he put on costumes. I I, I mean, he. He really needed a lot of help.
3: He really did. And, and the murder of uh, Lana Clark—I mean, that is a story that—I mean, that's worthy of last podcast. Like, we're yes. going to cover that on last podcast no one way. day. Like, oh, of course, yeah, yeah, cool. we're gonna, we're definitely going to cover that probably on a relaxed fit or something. But you know that that story is way too complicated, and way too big for us to go into here. No. Now, the Ramones at the very least knew that Phil Spector was not a stable individual because Debbie Harry, lead singer of Blondie, had already been freaked out by a trip to his mansion in 1977. But at this point, the Ramones were desperate to break through, so they pushed aside all the shit they knew about Phil Spector and ended up recording perhaps their most controversial album when it comes to a recording that diehard fans either love or hate. That album was end of the century.
1: This is Rock and Roll Radio. Come on, let's rock and roll with the Ramones.
3: It's
2: a great song.
3: Fantastic song. But this album is very controversial amongst Ramones fans cuz it's a pretty huge departure from the Ramones sound, which is exactly what the Ramones were going for. This was their last ditch Hail Mary for the mainstream. And to this day, people call this the Ramones' sellout album.
2: How? <laughs> I don't see it. <laughs>
3: no, I mean the they're, two, they're still
2: being the Ramones. Yeah,
3: we fucking love Into the Century, both of us. It's our favorite Ramones album, which we came upon separately we found that we found that out when we started dating that we shared the favorite our favorite ramones album now partly the reason why we love it so much is because these songs are some of the ramones career best inspector's production makes the ramones sound bigger and fuller than they ever had before or ever did afterward it sounds fucking great phil Spector, with all of his faults did an amazing job But really, calling this album a sellout is entirely unfair because this album, perhaps more than any other, stays true to the roots of the Ramones, or at the very least, stays true to the roots of Joey Ramone.
2: Yeah, he kind of got his wish.
3: Yeah, he got his way. but This is Joey's album. Yes. If this album was full of disco beats and fucking funky bass and guest vocals from Donna Summer, I'd call the sellout assessment Correct. Because it's 1979, disco's the big thing. Hell, I even get the assessment that Blondie sold out with Heart of Glass, even though I don't agree with it. I don't really think it's a sellout song. I think it's still Blondie. But with End of the Century, the Ramones are still themselves, and even sound somewhat closer to their punk contemporaries on this album than they do in any of them previous or after. Because the guitar in The Return of Jackie and Judy is very, very close to something you might hear from The Clash. (laughs)
5: Like he is a punk, Judy is a run. They went down to the mug club and they both got drunk.
3: If you don't like hand claps, it's not the album for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's part of the Phil Spector sound is, you know, like percussive noises, you know, sharp. Like, you know, the, the cassinets were a big part of Phil Spector sound but back in the girl in the girl group years. Uh, so it, it is very much a Phil Spector album. But perhaps the reason why people don't retrospectively examine the songs of End of the Century all that closely It's because the story of the album recording has overshadowed what was probably the most interesting album of the Ramones career.
2: Yeah, you're right. Everyone wants to talk about what Phil Spector did, that crazy guy. (laughs) What did that crazy little guy do? Every time. Well, the thing is that Phil's method of uh, recording was exhausting. Yes. Which is the complete opposite of the Ramones.
3: Yeah. I mean, they were a mismatch as far as work ethic went. Because you remember the Ramones? Like, they prided themselves on getting in the studio, recording the album, and getting the fuck out. As fast as humanly possible. And this wasn't Phil Spector's way.
2: No. (laughs) Phil would spend hours and hours getting everything set up before even recording a track so he'll actually get like be like all right now we're ready for johnny or we're ready for joey or whoever and it would be like one in the morning three in the morning and they're like we've been here all day yeah but it's because he had to have it perfect He would just make everyone wait endlessly because it had to be right. And you know what? A lot of people, you know, subscribe to his genius. So they're like, all right, I guess we're going to wait. We'll just put up with his insane behavior.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he was just a fucking strange guy.
2: Well, he had a very specific sound in his head it was just it's in his head it was one of those like brilliant mind things it was like I got it right here and then he would also record the songs and play it in the control room really loudly like they would say like it was like deafening and then he would play back the track after it's done and he would play it like on a radio like like the size of a car radio because then he realized the kids are going to listen to it this way
3: Yeah. I mean, I know back in the old days, there were a lot of people who did that, like where they would make a mix. They'd listen to it in the studio and then they put it on a cassette tape and go into a car and listen to it. And it's like, well, if it sounds good here, then it's going to sound good everywhere. And Phil Spector was that type of guy. Like he had like trying to pull what something sounds like in your head out into reality is in. insanely difficult (laughs) it is insanely difficult for anybody to do but Phil Spector like he had a method by this point, for doing it. He had a method for going through it. uh, But that method was completely at odds with what the Ramones did in the studio. So it led to a lot of conflicts. And Phil Spector was also, like I said, he was just fucking weird. (laughs) Like, he had oxygen tanks designed by Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys installed at the studios where the Ramones recorded. And his sound engineer the guy that you know worked on all the knobs and all the dials he would only communicate with them through a series of mysterious hand gestures
2: oh Larry Levine Yeah, the guy he gave Larry a heart attack (laughs) by the end of the Ramones recording I'm not kidding you and then they didn't speak for like 10 years never mentioned the Ramones to Phil
3: (laughs) when it comes to end of the century the Ramones and Phil Spector. The most famous stories involve Spector's aforementioned penchant for guns and how those guns were used during various stages of recording. In one story, the Ramones were being particularly difficult in the studio concerning exactly what Phil wanted, so Spector pulled out a gun, laid it on the mixing board, and silently let the boys know who was boss.
2: Yes, what a gigantic penis Phil Spector has. <laughs> Good job, Phil. We wouldn't have known otherwise. <laughs> That's true, because remember, he's very um, eccentric, yes. right? Is that what you call it? You know, yelling, shit, piss, fuck. <laughs> like he's the fucking mayor of the taking of Pelham 123. <laughs> like, just always, because, you know, as you said, like gesturing wildly, uh, just just acting out. Uh, he, I mean, I, I understand why guns are useful in yeah. some st- Circumstances. In some circumstances, yes, but yeah. but at a famous Hollywood record studio.
3: No, I think he figured out early on that it's a very strange thing with Phil Spector is that he definitely had a vision in his head of what he wanted to get done, but he also didn't have the people skills necessary to herd someone into that space, into the space of like that. If you do what I say, you will get a hit. So he kind of used a shortcut. That's what it was. The gun was his shortcut.
2: He would have four guns on him. <laughs> he would have like the holster- the holsters and then he'd like put one in each boot. Like he would seriously walk around seriously armed. I don't know how he wasn't achy after that. <laughs> but okay, so this is what happened. This is a few days into recording um, at Gold Star Studios. Phil made Johnny play the first chord to rock and roll high school. Over and over again, For hours.
3: Some people say it was up to 10 hours.
2: It was actually two. It was... It's just, you know, it yeah. felt like 10.
3: Yeah, the, the story definitely grew over the years. I've even saw some person, one, I saw one person write, it's like, Phil Spector forced Johnny Ramone to play the opening chord to Rock and Roll High School for 12 hours straight. <laughs> <No>.
2: <laughs> He's still doing it to this day. <laughs> <year.
3: laughs> but still two hours playing the same chord over and over and over and over and over and again and again and again and again and again and again. That's... Grueling.
2: Yeah, Johnny was getting real tired of this shit.
3: <laughs> and this so. is a guy that prided himself on coming into the studio, getting this shit done, and then getting out.
2: But he's like, all right, you're just gonna put up with this just a little bit more. Then Phil took out his gun, a 38, and just put it on the table near the console. And then he brought out another gun, his 45. <laughs> and everybody got tense. And even Didi like kind of looked over, like, should I run? And Johnny was standing there just, like, frozen, just staring at the other side of the glass, looking at Phil, being like, eh, what do we do now? But then, at that right, right at that moment, according to Marky, two ladies of the night <laughs> came in during the day. Yeah. But, you know, the sex workers. Yes, yes, Came in to, um, and Phil disappeared for a while. Uh-huh. And he came back 15 minutes later. He was in a much better mood. <laughs> <laughs> and... And then, but while he was out there, they're like, okay, we're going to take a break. Johnny runs into the control room and he's like, did you see that? Phil Spector was going to shoot me. <laughs> That's what Marky says. What Johnny said is that Phil just put his gun down, just whatever, randomly.
3: To get comfortable? Yeah. he's adjusting and
2: himself? Trying to sit, maybe. <laughs> and Johnny looked at Phil and said, what are you going to do? Shoot me? <laughs> Which is, admittedly, a little more John Wayne. So I I can see why that's a better side of the story.
3: Well, it also sounds a little bit more like Johnny.
2: Yeah, (laughs) it does. So it was so obvious that they couldn't work like this. So the band had a meeting with Phil Spector in Joey's hotel room at the Tropicana. And Ed Stasium, remember Ed Stasian, they brought him in just to help out. He produced a lot of their records before. Mm-hmm. So Ed Stasium became the liaison in the meeting. <laughs> so Johnny would go, Ed, tell Phil I can't work like this anymore. And Ed would say, Phil, <laughs> Johnny said that he can't work like this anymore. <laughs> really? We're all sitting on the same With bed. Fucking I, don't, children. I don't <laughs> And then Phil would say, Ed, tell Johnny that I'm sorry and we'll change it. Okay, Johnny, I get it, I get it, I get it. You know, and it was a lot of that, especially because, you know, Phil Spector would get just trashed. Yeah. That's the thing. He was drinking his uh, favorite Manischewitz wine out of Dixie cups. Yeah. Except for when he was at home, he would drink out of a goblet with jewels on it. Like, he just had to, I don't know, he just brought his thing all everywhere he went. He was always drinking all the time. He was... Yeah. <sighs> anyway, went on like that. Eventually they decided okay, things will things will change, things will get a little bit better.
3: Yeah. And that the thing is though about Rock and Roll High School, the version of Rock and Roll High School on End of the Century is probably the worst song on End of the Century. Yeah. It's not a perfect album. Like it no. really isn't. Like the version of Rock and Roll High School that was recorded for End of the Century is not very good. Like, no, it, the
2: Ed Stacian one is better.
3: The Ed Stacian one is fantastic, the one that was recorded for the movie. Uh the one recorded for Phil Spector. Uh yeah, it, it's, it's uh, fine. yeah, it well it's just it's uh bloated, it's lame. Uh, it, it just doesn't work at all. But the most famous story concerning Phil Spector and the Ramones involved what sounds like an out and out hostage situation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, because after that confrontation in the studio, Dee Dee told them, Oh, did you know Phil did kind of like the same thing to me? <laughs> Like, when we were at his house, they're like, what? Really? Yeah. Like, yeah, remember? Like, uh, this was a few weeks before going into the studio. Uh, the Ramones, they went to go hang out with Phil Spector at his house.
3: Yeah, and they'd already agreed, like, we're going to work with you. This was kind of the getting to know you. Yeah. Uh, t- yeah. <laughs> get together.
2: So, yes, exactly. This is more the, the orientation. <laughs> and... And so they go to his house, uh, well, they go to the gate of a compound, really. That's what it really looked like. And they said they had a lot of, like, warning signs, like, but handmade amateurish warning signs, (laughs) like saying, no trespassing, do not enter, do not touch the gate, beware of attack dogs. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Obviously, Phil Spector wrote them himself. (laughs) And then so he, you know, brought them in. He uh, gave them some beer. He had them hang out at at the piano room and made them listen to him play Baby I Love You over and over again while he drank copious amounts of wine.
3: He made them listen to him play the same song until 4.30 in the morning.
2: Everyone was afraid to ask Phil if they could go home. (laughs) (laughs) A terrible host. (laughs) So, well... The story goes is that Dee Dee got tired though, because they've been drinking for hours at his place, and he never had food. Yeah. So Dee Dee goes upstairs to where Phil and Joey were hanging out, because you see, Phil loved Joey.
3: That was Phil's whole thing. He didn't give a shit about anybody else. Right. The Ramones. He only cared. There was something about Joey Ramone's voice that he just fell in love with.
2: Yeah, he like kind of singled out Joey you know, as the true talent yeah. in the band. So Phil and Joey spent hours talking about his singing and they were away from the band, they were upstairs. But Dee Dee wasn't heavy. So he starts to walk up the stairs going like, Hey, what's going on? And Phil burst out of the room with his thirty eight and pointed it at Dee Dee's heart and said, Go back downstairs. <laughs> and then he uh, did the thing where you know he field stripped the gun he took it apart and he brought it back like, and he pulled it back in like all that shit and then like kind of did like the quick draw pistol thing and just put it back in I don't know how to do it I don't know how he did it but he's fucking like like
3: like RoboCop
2: yeah and DD's like I just want to go home now and Phil said no one's going anywhere because it's movie night we're gonna watch a movie downstairs we're also expecting Al Lewis, <laughs> the grandpa monster. <laughs> so that's what Dee Dee says. Yeah. All right. The other guy said, sure, you know, we saw guns. We weren't held hostage. We can go whenever we wanted to. Dee Dee a fantastic fabricator, as we know. And uh, Marky did say in his book, it's not impossible that it happened. <laughs> but very unlikely. But that's probably because Phil hated Dee Dee with a passion. He did. And, in, and if you read in the, the punk book, uh, Please Kill Me, D.D. is quoted as saying, I haven't met anyone crazier than him, but he liked me a lot.
3: <laughs> you know, he uh, <laughs> he liked me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Except Dee- for that word, too. <laughs> well, D.D., I mean, he made up a lot of shit about End of the Century. Like, D.D. at one point said... Uh, you know, I don't think that any of us played on the album. <laughs> you know, like, like, he actually believed that Phil Spector <laughs> secretly brought in other musicians to play all He's like, because I don't remember recording anything, <laughs> you know. Well, like, of course you don't. <laughs> Although, like We is... had rehearsals, yeah, but I don't, you know... Remember.
2: (laughs) Like, all right, Dee Dee. It's partly true. There's one song that the band, the backing band, the backing band, listen to me, now it became (laughs) Phil. No, there's one song where, uh, you know, Johnny, Dee Dee, and Marky did not play on.
3: Yeah, and that song, uh, the band said, was their biggest regret. I, they said and it, we we saw in the Ramones museum and uh in Berlin when we got to go there uh when you know we were doing a tour there um there was a questionnaire that we saw that the Ramones had all filled out and they all said what is your biggest regret recording baby i love you oh uh except for Joey who said recording with Phil Spector uh, <laughs> <laughs> they all hated baby i love you because Joey was the only one on the song But even so, that was still their highest charting song ever in the UK. It's I mean, wonderful. it's
2: a shame that the rest of the band didn't get to be on it. <laughs> <laughs> they got some uh, Wrecking Crew guys on that.
3: No shit. Who yeah. played on that? Uh,
2: Steve Douglas on sax. Nice. The famous Steve Douglas. Jim Keltner on drums. Yeah. And then David Kessel, uh, he played the the guitar part on the song. Uh, you know, David Kessel being the son of Barney Kessel. Ah. Yes. The cor- famed fame session guitarist.
3: Yeah, of course, uh, The Wrecking Crew were uh, the, the series of uh, studio musicians that were behind some of the biggest hits of the 60s and
2: 70s. Yeah, watch the documentary. I think it's on oh, Netflix. It's really good.
3: It's so fucking good. Yeah, The Wrecking Crew documentary is fantastic. Very illuminating as yes. far as like how people used to record music back then. But speaking of songs on End of the Century, one song featured on the album has a story all of its own outside of recording with Phil Spector. That song, one of Dee Dee's best Or was it? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> With Chinese rock <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's a great song. I mean, you can he- also hear it on the Heartbreakers album. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> Recorded about, what, three years before, two years before, something like that?
2: Yes. What happened was because Dee Dee wrote this song when Richard Hell, remember from the Voidoids that we talked about mm-hmm. and and also the Heartbreakers?
3: And also television.
2: And television. Richard Hell said he was going to write a new song about heroin and make it like the new heroin, like the new <laughs> Lou Reed's heroin.
3: Yeah, like, like the Velvet Underground's heroin, not like the new drug heroin. Yes, yeah. yes,
2: yes. Exactly. <laughs> And so Didi, uh, as just, I don't know, some sort of quick response, decided to write it, like, that day. He wrote the song, you know, Chinese Rock, immediately. And then Richard Hell came over to Didi's place and helped him finish the song. But really, he only contributed, like, to a few verses since the song was practically finished. Yeah. And this is before, this is, like... Years ago
3: This is before They even recorded The first album I think Yes but Like th- this is like 75 early 76 or Something like that uh, And yeah It was a song That Dee, Dee wrote But Johnny didn't want it Johnny didn't want The Ramones to sing And he's like It's about drugs Yeah It's, it's, too, it's too much It's too much it's, I can't do it. Can't do this song Can't do this song
2: Yeah so they vetoed it So Dee, Dee gave it To Richard Hell For his band For the Heartbreakers And so he sang And played it In the Heartbreakers Then when Richard Hell Left the band And then they the Heartbreakers recorded the album they put on Chinese rocks mm-hmm. with the S
3: yeah. <laughs> it's with the S Yeah, it's a, it's not it's ding 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 dida ding ding
2: <laughs> exactly like yeah. Vanilla Ice trying to explain how he stole a Queen song
3: how oh, he did not steal under pressure <laughs> because of their ding 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 dida ding ding and I'm ding 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 dida ding ding see it's totally different
2: and there's the at the end <laughs> And so when the Heartbreakers recorded it they credited DD Dee Dee, Richard Hell and the rest of the band. Yeah. It's like they had, Jerry Nolan and Johnny Thunders had nothing to do with the song.
3: They weren't even there.
2: Well, they eventually changed it. They yeah. changed it to they gave DD Dee Dee Ramon... Full credit and and Richard Hell of course because he contributed so uh, at least it was all sorted out in the end and Didi was saying uh, and Didi said at that time he's like I just I didn't care I was on drugs <laughs>
3: <laughs> it was fine that's a fun, I mean that's how Didi Dee Dee used to write songs like Dee, Dee would write songs so fast and a lot of them were terrible like he even admits that and so he's like a yeah I wrote a lot of songs that were just absolutely fucking awful but then every like every tenth song would be absolute fucking genius.
2: That's why you gotta write 10 songs.
3: Yeah, you just gotta keep fucking writing. And of course, later we're gonna explore uh, what so Dee sometimes you shouldn't. Do. <laughs> we're gonna explore Dee songwriting capabilities in a different way uh, <laughs> later on in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I'd sometimes Dee uh, Dee's lyrics sound a, a lot better when sung by Joey. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Now, End of the Century
3: is somewhat aptly named, because End of the Century was the end of a fantastic five-album streak of brilliance from the Ramones. Now, don't get me wrong. Every Ramones album ever released has at least one great song, and there was still one more great Ramones album in the future. But End of the Century was when the rift between Johnny and Joey began to get very personal, and things were only made worse when the Ramones switched up how all the songs were credited as far as who wrote
2: them. Yeah, because I mean, Joey and Dee Dee were writing most of the songs. Yeah. Uh, they wanted to get individual songwriting credits instead of just saying Ramones like it did before. You know, all songs by the Ramones. So, you know, they put a vote to this and uh, Johnny was outvoted because he's like, I don't understand. It's fine. Just say it by the Ramones. I mean, we are the Ramones. I mean, <laughs> you guys are the Ramones too. I mean, like, you know, so it's all good. And they're like, no. I mean, we've been working so hard writing all these songs that you guys are playing. So they all agreed to it eventually, and uh, but they also agreed to uh, split the money equally. So financially, everything would be the same. It's just yeah. give extra credit to Joey and Didi.
3: Of course. I mean, it was like a like a producer credit almost. Like it, it was just a. It was very symbolic. It was a symbolic gesture. But the rift between Johnny and Joey, like it really started during end of the century. Phil Spector was paying all the attention to Joey. Johnny was sort of getting left behind. Things just kind of changed a little bit. Would you say that's fair?
2: Yeah, I, I think it even started probably like when Tommy left the band. Yeah. Because Tommy was kind of sort of the man in charge in a way. And then when Tommy left, then things got a little bit weird. And then it settled even weirder by the time Phil showed up and saying... You know, Joey, you're a genius. Yeah. Johnny, you're in the way. Yeah. Move over there. I got I to gotta go hug Joey. You know, so uh, yeah. obviously that's going to take a toll.
3: Yeah, of course. And things were made even worse when End of the Century was released in February of 1980 to good reviews. But once again, poor sales. It didn't work. But, how,
2: how? How did that happen?
3: <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, that, of course, you know, that, that puts the rift even, that makes the rift even bigger because Joey was wrong. You know, and Johnny was right, and that type of shit festers. But it's not like the charts were nothing but disco when the eighties began. When this was released in nineteen eighty, to put it in the context, as secretly contemporary as end of the century was, Spectre's production gave it a throwback feel, and like most Ramones recordings, it was old-fashioned because the Ramones wore their sixties influences on their sleeves constantly. That's the, the Ramones are kind of old-fashioned. But it's not like Old Fashioned wasn't selling either. The same spring that the Ramones released End of the Century, Queen scored a number one hit with the hopelessly hokey crazy little thing called Love. It's fine But it's It's great it, <laughs> I don't know I, th- I think it's The blandest thing Queen ever produced <laughs> <laughs> Like it, it's It's fine It's just you know I'd rather listen to Dwight Yoakam Really? Yeah Wow Then Crazy Little Thing Called Love Yeah It's the crazy little Thing called Love They just Dwight Yoakam did it A billion times better <laughs> <laughs> There was a fair amount of rock in the top 100 that year. You know, Pink Floyd, Pat Benatar, Supertramp, Pretenders, Tom Petty, they all had top 100 hits. Even Blondie. Blondie had the number one song that year with a rock song. Wow. Yeah, number one song that year was Calm. Starting class at a new high school. But he's about to find out <laughs> <laughs> how many fucking movie trailers has call me been fucking used in. You're right. <laughs> it's like Call Me and The Passenger. Like those are the two Yeah. Yeah, those two songs have you been used so many fucking times in that, movie trailers.
2: The semi on your way. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that song's about like a male gigolo, right? Isn't that the the movie that was it was based?
3: Uh, I, I, I think so, yeah.
2: Yeah, so it's it's so funny that 53rd and 3rd, <laughs> Dee Dee Ramone's song about hustling on the streets as a, as a male sex worker, and then Call Me becomes number one.
3: <laughs> number one. The number one song in the fucking year. It was number one for, I think, seven weeks. Wow. It was fucking crazy. No, Blondie was gigantic in the late 70s, early 80s. But even so... The rock songs in the top 100 were the exception, not the rule, and a more apt representation of that year's most popular music lies in the number 11 hit of 1980, recorded and released by a guy named Rupert.
5: If you like Peter, come on.
2: You know what I heard from Rupert Holmes mm. uh, that he changed the line, "If you like Humphrey Bogart and getting caught in the rain," mm-hmm. to "Pina Coladas," <laughs> and it worked. It was that was the magic. That was the magic word, I guess.
3: Yeah, pina. Yeah, because that's what everyone. It's even called "Escape," the Pina Colada song. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> <laughs> like that's how much they knew that Pina Colada was just the fu- That was the hook for the whole fucking thing. But that was, you know. That was much more representative of what people were listening to in 1980. But, you know, so the odds were against the Ramones with the end of the century, but with all the other shit in there, like, there was a shot. Like, it was not an impossible dream for them to get a hit here. But since the Ramones missed that shot yet again, they thought, maybe it's Danny's fault. Maybe it's Linda's fault. So they fired their longtime managers, Danny Fields and Linda Stein.
2: I know I mean well Didi Dee Dee and Joey voted to get new management because they're like well I mean maybe it's just not working because we, we need to think big or something mm-hmm. you know they liked him personally but you know this is the business we call show yeah. so Johnny was loyal to Danny though but he was outvoted because <laughs> you know they always voted on everything yeah. and Marky's vote didn't count. So, because he's new.
1: Oh, man. Yeah.
2: yeah, it would take years for his vote to count. Oh, God, can you
3: imagine having to convince Dee Dee or something? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that's what they went with. They, they just decided, yep, yeah, sorry, yeah. guys, we, we're, we're, we want to move to the big time.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a, the unfortunate thing about Danny Fields is that Danny Fields is always eventually fired. Yeah. You know, he's one of the most important figures in rock history, responsible for The Doors, the Stooges, the MC5, the Ramones, and he always got fired in the end.
2: He was just the most unappreciated great guy ever.
3: He really was. He really fucking was. So to replace Danny and Linda, the Ramones hired a fellow Forest Hills alum named Gary Kerfirst, whose pedigree in the music business involved starting up the career of one of punk's most unlikely, but in retrospect, most obvious influences, the Shangri-Las.
0: Is she really going out with him? Well, there she is. Let's ask her. Betty, is that Jimmy's ring you're wearing? Mm Mm-hmm. Gee, it must be great riding with him. Is he picking you up after school today? Mm
4: Mm-mm. By the way, where'd you meet him? I met him at the candy store. He turned
2: around and smiled at me. You get the picture? Yes, we see. That's when I fell for the leader of the past.
3: I really can't say enough how great the shangri Laws are. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Really. I love them.
3: Yeah. Love them so much.
2: Ah, they're from Queens, just like me. Yeah. Just like Gary. <laughs> just like the Ramones. <laughs> 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 Gary, Cur- <laughs> Gary Kerr first. Uh, He was managing, by this time, it was like 1980, he was managing the B-52s, the Talking Heads, uh, with his own management company, Overland Productions, which included, like, the Pretenders and Blondie. Yeah. So he was a good business guy who wasn't around for, like, exactly the day-to-day operations, you know, for the Ramones. He rarely went to their shows, but he got things done.
3: If there was a guy that was going to get the Ramones over and out, like, it was Gary Kerr first.
2: Yeah, and he became their manager for the rest of their career yeah. as a Ramones.
3: But even so, even though they finally had a guy that, you know, could get them going places, amidst the relative failure of end of the century and in the turmoil of new management, along with the stress of a constant touring schedule, the biggest rift of the Ramones career opened up when Johnny supposedly stole Joey's girlfriend.
2: Oh, I think he did. <laughs>
3: Well, that's just, it's one of those things. There's a lot of different stories.
2: Yeah, there are different stories around that period, and it can get confusing. So let's just go with uh, Johnny and Linda's story first.
3: Yes. Linda, of course, Linda, we talked about her in the last episode. Like, she was the one that Joey met when they were at the Tropicana Hotel, when they were recording, uh, when they were filming Rock and Roll High School. Uh, this was the woman that Johnny had written Danny Says for. Joey was absolutely in love with this woman.
2: Yeah. And Johnny was also in love with this woman.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, jo- Joey and Linda were
2: engaged. Yeah, yeah, for a time. Yeah. And it's so crazy. Okay, so what happened was that jo- Johnny says that he was first charmed by Linda at the beginning of her relationship with Joey. Mm-hmm. Because after they filmed uh, you know, Rock and Roll High School and, and they rapped, uh, Linda joined the guys on the West Coast tour. And they were all getting into the van, they were all piling in, and Linda sat up front. Johnny said, "Nah, you you sit in the back row." And Linda got up and moved, but not before saying, "Not for long." <laughs> so like yeah. he's just like. Ah, who's this sassy lady?
3: <laughs> and, and remember, this isn't necessarily Johnny Ramone being sexist. This is Johnny Ramone just being an asshole. Rules are rules. Because <laughs> Johnny was in charge of the seating arrangements on the van and had been for years. Yes. <laughs> it was one of Johnny's little controls.
2: Right. And he also felt a little more kinship to her, especially because Johnny's father passed away in the middle of recording end of the century. Yeah. And so he got a ride to the airport with Monty and and Joey and Linda came along, and then she came along again when they picked him up from the airport. And he just he never forgot that. Yeah. And then the two of them became really close, like really, really close. Johnny said that she was his best friend. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Imagine that, like your your bandmate's girlfriend is your best friend.
3: Yeah. that's weird.
2: Yeah, they, they spent a lot of time together on tour in New York City. When they were at home, uh, Joey and Linda lived just around the corner from Johnny and his girlfriend, Roxy. So they would all hang out together. But eventually, Johnny and Linda would start hanging out, having lunch, just the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what others have said, like Monty Melnick, you know, their their uh, tour manager, or uh, Mickey Lee, Joey's brother, they all said that they've been having an affair for a year before the truth came out. Yeah, like the one time they were on tour and a roadie saw them holding hands in a jacuzzi at the Holiday
4: Inn.
2: Ooh, oh, scandalous. <laughs> Or when Marky saw Johnny rub Linda's leg during lunch once. Like, mm. There were little things that were going on.
3: Yeah, little subconscious things.
2: Johnny never admitted to them cheating on their significant others while they were with their people. He said that by the summer of 1982, Linda had already left Joey. And a few months later, he left his girlfriend. And after that, they had to be together in secret. Even moving in together not telling Joey. Yeah. So eventually Joey did find out yeah. about this affair. And uh, Johnny and Linda started going out. and But Johnny would have to hide it. So she can't go on tour anymore. Uh, when they moved in together, uh, he couldn't tell anybody really. Or at least not Joey. And they would just meet up just, just kind of in secret for a while. Until they finally realized, like as Johnny put it, you can't live a lie. Yeah. So they did get married in City Hall in 1984. Linda wore a very pretty floral dress with a bouquet of uh, plastic flowers that they rented. It's very nice. And Johnny uh, just wearing his jeans and black T-shirt. <laughs> so Joey finally swimming ashore from the River of Denial <laughs> after a couple people had told him what was going on. Uh, he just said... Really, he couldn't do anything about it, but he said, like, Johnny crossed the line. Yeah. He destroyed any close relationship to the Ramones from there on from there on out. But the band continued on because the Ramones were always a top priority. You know, even for Joey. Even though Joey did hold a grudge for the rest of his life.
3: For the rest of his life he until he not, died.
2: He could not let that one go. I, I think it wasn't just because he lost his girlfriend, but he lost his girlfriend to Johnny.
3: Yes. Uh, That was it. Yeah, because Joey and Johnny never really liked each other all that much. And one of the big reasons why is that Joey was intensely left-wing. I mean, he was very, very, very liberal. Uh, And Johnny was intensely right-wing. Very, very, very conservative.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So they never really spoke again, except they would have like a go-between. Like, you know, Monty would be like tell them to do this and then you know they had to go back and forth with all that stuff even though they were in the same room poor joey he got more into drinking he started doing coke his ocd started getting worse especially with his hygiene Mm -hmm. i mean he was just falling down this awful slope of depression
3: yeah no he did not handle it well at all (laughs) and and that's the thing is that from then on like the ramones were uh like they truly were a business like they were co-workers and they were coworkers who did not like each other very much, but had no choice but to keep going. But even though Joey and Johnny never really spoke again, the Ramones continued to tour and continued to record, and in 1981, they went back into the studio for what was a fairly solid follow-up to End of the Century. That one was called Pleasant Dreams. <laughs> ¶¶ and a pretty good album.
2: Yeah, the album's not bad. I mean, the Ramones, they wanted to produce the album themselves, but Sire pushed for, like, a big-time producer. So they got Graham Goldman, who was in the 60s band Mindbenders. Oh, no shit! Yeah, and 10CC, which you know I love Ten CC. I
3: know you love Ten yeah. CC.
2: Yeah. <laughs> they got my one of my favorite songs, uh, "Dreadlock Holiday."
3: I know you love Dreadlock. <laughs> I remember we were driving a few week or a few weeks, a few months ago, and Dreadlock Holiday came on. You lost your fucking mind. Yeah. <laughs> let's listen, actually let's listen to a little bit of Dreadlock Holiday. Thank this you. is for you.
2: Thank you. <laughs>
5: Down the street, concentrating on truck and right. I heard a dark voice beside of me, and I looked round in a state of fright. I saw four faces, one map, a brother from the gutter. They looked me up and down a bit and turned to each other.
3: as far as white men doing reggae goes, it's certainly better than the police. <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> I like the police, too.
3: Yeah, yeah, I but, know. But
2: at 10CC, I don't know how they did it, but they tapped something in and it, and it made it perfect.
3: Yeah, it really did.
2: But there were still issues with the band, you know? Like, Joey and Marky were down to work with Graham because he was an expert songwriter and producer of bubblegum pop hits. Like, that was his thing. But Johnny and Dee Dee wanted to go more, like, raw punk sound. Yeah. A little harder Especially after End of the century Yeah (laughs) (laughs) And Johnny likes to tell The story of how Graham Goldman was Wrong for the album Because Graham asked Johnny to turn down His amp Because it was like Humming Yeah and Johnny's like, no one ever told me to do that before.
3: Yeah.
4: This
2: guy's not right.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, there's great fucking songs on this record. Like, this is the album that KKK Took My Baby Away is on. Like, this is the one, It's Not My Place in the 9 to 5 World. She's a sensation, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Like, like there's some amazing Ramon songs on here. Uh, but it's uh, it's uneven.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. You're right it, it, because Dee Dee and Joey wrote the songs, but I mean, pretty much half and half, five and seven songs, and uh, they they do sound a little bit. It's it just doesn't really gel well. Yeah, but there are some great songs on there, like KKK took my baby away, uh, like Seven uh, Eleven, uh, mm-hmm. which is very Shangri La's you know style, mm-hmm. like lyrics wise. Oh yeah. But Joey said, and I do agree with this: it lacks aggression. You yes. know, the songs were better written this time, but the aggression just didn't come through on the album. They lost lots of fans during this time. That's what they're saying: like, uh, we're kind of losing it right now. But in the crazy thing is, like, when they recorded the demos before going into the studio, they recorded them with Tom, with Tommy and Ed Stasium. They sounded great. Yeah. And then going in with Graham, it just didn't come out the way it should have
3: yeah it just didn't it doesn't have the hardness and it doesn't necessarily have the aggression but still the songs are fucking great like check this one out this is she's a sensation this song's amazing Actually, now that I listen to it, that Joey does sound kind of bored in that.
2: Yeah, well, his voice was kind of going a little bit at that time. Yeah. And so it, it was hard on him. I mean, you can hear on some of the songs, like, especially in the later albums, his voice sounds different sometimes.
3: It does, yeah. It doesn't have the strength that it once did.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: But there were other problems within the Ramones besides just Johnny and Joey hating each other. Even though Dee Dee was scared enough of Johnny to keep sober at least for shows... Marky was deep into a destructive drinking problem.
2: Yeah, you could say he was wild. <laughs> he was wild. He would eat stuff for money and like like he would eat like cat food or like beetles. Like I'm not even kidding you. Like they would be like if you eat this whole can of cat food, we'll give you 50 bucks. And Marky's like, "All right." And he's almost 30 at this point, <laughs> which is OK, fine. You know what? 50 bucks. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Th- I get it.
3: Yeah, I get it. That, that's definitely enough <laughs> money for booze. It's a night of booze.
2: And one of the big moments of Marky's insane drinking was uh, after the Ramones did a show in Columbus, Ohio, Marky got blackout drunk with a groupie. He was taking shots of Bacardi 151 Mm. that's 75% alcohol it's a bad idea it's really bad and so Monty their manager was like hey don't forget Marky tomorrow we're getting up real early to drive to Virginia (laughs) Beach (laughs) remember that the gig and Marky's like yeah yeah I'll I'll be fine I'll be fine I'll just get a ride from my good friend here uh what's her name I will meet you there Okay. The next day Marky had a really bad hangover, of course, and barely made it to the hotel restaurant yeah. for lunch, which means he missed the he missed the van.
3: Yeah, he missed the bus to Virginia Beach.
2: But that's okay because they had the day off to tra- to travel. So he's like, "It's okay. My my friend what's her face is going to set up a whole thing." So he gets to the hotel restaurant to, and he's just like, "Coffee, just give me pots pots of coffee right now. I need I need to somehow get to Virginia." And then he looks over at the restaurant and he recognized somebody. And he's like, hey, it, am I still drunk or is that baseball Yankee player Roger Maris sitting over there? <laughs> <laughs> And so he's like, fuck. <laughs> hey, Roger, Roger, can I sit with you? And Marky just sits down. Hey, yeah, yeah, bring some coffee over here. <sighs> okay, so what's Mickey Mantle like? <laughs> and so he hung out with baseball legend Roger Maris. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yes.
5: Oh, man.
2: And so his, uh, his, uh, his friend, yeah, the groupie friend, uh, what's her name? Uh, she came over and she told him, hey, you know that ride I promised I'd get? Well, uh, he didn't show and there is no ride. Yeah. And Marky was fucked because it's a nine hour drive from Ohio to Virginia Beach.
3: And Roger Maris wasn't gonna give him that ride. Right.
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> so Marky did what he had to do. He had a few drinks at the hotel bar. <sighs> yeah. And, and, I mean, he was like, well, we have the day off, right? That that day was for traveling. You know what I'll do? The next morning I will catch a flight. So he wakes up the next morning and guess what? there's no flights of course no i mean there's flights that that can lay over from like three different stops to get him there by midnight yeah that's just not gonna work so he tried to get a private plane to charter him there to the gig he got on the phone with a pilot and he said name your price i'll fly it myself he was drunk again yeah not still again again (laughs) monty called up marky and said okay the pilot you talked to refuses to have you on the plane (laughs) He knows that you're trashed and you're considered a liability. So that's not, <laughs> that's out the window now. So Marky just took the phone off the hook and went to bed in Ohio. Ugh. He missed the show. He had to pay $5,000 from his own salary for the canceled show. Not just for wasting the band's time or the promoters or anyone working at the venue, but because the kids started rioting when they heard the show was canceled. They broke windows, chairs, destroyed the venue. When they were kicked out to the parking lot, they destroyed the cars there.
3: God damn.
2: Yeah, that's a big fuck up. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yeah, to say the least.
2: And then three months later, they started recording uh, Subterranean Jungle, their seventh album. There, Marky would swig a pint of vodka in the studio, in the studio bathroom, actually, and then hide it in the trash can.
3: Oh, man, it's never a good idea when you're hiding the booze.
2: And then he would get smashed and do what is famously known as the chicken feet boy dance. He would put his hands underneath his armpits and move them around like a chicken, arch his back, and dance around saying, Chicken beak boy, chicken beak boy. Is he human? Is he chicken? No, he is chicken beak boy. I can't I can't do it. can you do it? I can't do. It. He would jump on the couch squawking. Dee Dee said that he would do it without his pants on. Yeah. I, I didn't believe any of this until I read it in Marky's book. <laughs> <laughs> he, so he scared the shit out of their, like, th- their producer, uh, Richie Cordell, who was producing that album. And then Dee, Dee ratted Marky out on mm. the bottle of vodka in the bathroom. Oh. So it just seemed like all things were going south.
3: Yeah, and Subterranean Jungle, uh, which is a barely mediocre album. Uh, it was Marky's last album with the Ramones until 1987.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was not a good album.
3: No. Well, it wasn't. It was, but, you know, like all mediocre Ramones albums there's at least one great song It's a pretty good song. Yeah, yeah, it's a great song. I mean, it's another it's another entry in the Ramones mental health series. Yes,
2: Dee Dee finally being diagnosed with bipolar and taking a lot of medications for that. Yeah, as well as drugs. It it was not it was a bad cocktail of stuff that yeah. he was putting in. The system.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: And then they did the uh, cover shoot, you know, for the album uh, at a New York City subway car. They did all the poses, you know, sitting in a row on a train, standing up at the door, strap hanging, you know, all kinds of poses. And then Johnny was like, hey, uh, Marky, why don't you move over there and look out the, the, the window? Yeah. And Well, w- yes, the three of us will stand over here. That's mm-hmm. perfect. That's the one.
3: Yeah, because Johnny had pretty much already decided Marky was fucking going.
2: Yeah. A few weeks later, Marky got a call from Joey, January 1983. And Joey's like, hey, I feel real bad about this, but you're out of the band. And Marky said, it's fine. I, I knew it was coming. Yeah, You know, like that album cover shoot, uh, having someone sit in for drums when I left early that one time. <laughs> Not inviting me to the rehearsals this week. Yeah, I saw it coming.
3: <laughs> so to replace Marky on drums, the Ramones brought in a guy named Richie Reinhardt, who had formerly played with a now largely forgotten, but still pretty good New York City new wave band called Velveteen. <laughs>
5: I spilled my drink. I was busy, forgot to think. Did the road in the stocking catch your eye when it started at the boot, ran to the night? I didn't hide it, I didn't
3: try. Pretty good. You yeah, got an echo in the Bunnymen feel to it. Yeah, like, yeah it, it's I like pretty it. Good. Yeah, they, they released like one EP. And I think a guy that was briefly in Roxy Music was also in... This band, so like Velveteen was, they were pretty good, but you know none of this stuff's on Spotify or anything. But the lead singer actually <laughs> uploaded all of it to YouTube, so oh, we, yeah, that's helpful. That's very helpful. You can go listen to it. It's pretty good. It's pretty fucking good. It's solid new wave. Now the thing about Richie is that even though he played 400 shows with the Ramones, recorded three albums, and was even the only Ramones drummer to have his songs on a record, he was always kind of treated like a hired gun. Like he wasn't really a Ramone, or at least not when it came to t-shirt
2: sales oh yeah <laughs> that's the money maker
3: <laughs> yeah that's the ramones big money maker yeah it's richie ramone like he disappeared for a very long time uh and then when he showed up in the the ramones documentary end of the century wearing a fucking three-piece suit like he had left his punk past far behind like it was no long he, that was no longer richie ramones lifestyle he looked like a fucking insurance salesman. But From what Dee Dee said, Richie put the spirit back into the Ramones and essentially saved them, giving them the energy they needed to record one last great album. But the thing was, in August of 1983, the Ramones almost ended for reasons completely outside of interpersonal complex. In that month, Johnny Ramone was damn near killed by a fellow punk musician.
2: Oh, yeah. This was after a Ramon show. Johnny got dropped off at his old apartment on 10th Street because, remember, he was still pretending he lived there <laughs> so Joey wouldn't know he was li- living with Linda already. Yeah. So this it's 3 in the morning. He gets dropped off. He's looking to find a cab to, to get to his place, and he sees his ex-girlfriend, Roxy, sitting on the stoop of their old apartment. Hmm. Well, probably still her apartment. Yeah. And she was drunk. She was hanging out with some punk kid. Johnny goes over to them and tells Roxy, get inside and tell this punk to get lost. You Uh know how Johnny is. (laughs) And the punk said, no, I'm not leaving. They had it out. Johnny doesn't remember anything after that because the next day he woke up in St. Vincent's Hospital with a fractured skull, brain bleed, and had to undergo emergency brain surgery. And it took three months to recover from it. It was was terrible. And when Joey heard, he laughed. (laughs) He said... Maybe they should have given him a brain transplant. <laughs> <laughs> the story was, was on the front page of the New York Post. It was like, Rocker fights for life.
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, he almost died. He got yeah, his he fucking, almost died. He got his skull kicked in. Yeah. Uh, this, yeah, and the, the punk, like, he was. I can't even remember the name of the band that he was in. It was called like the Subterranean Tools or uh, something like that.
2: Sub-Zero Construction. Uh, uh, the, yeah. The, yeah, the punk kid was Seth Macklin from that band. Uh, Seth knocked him out and then kicked him while he was down with his boots and Seth served actually a few months in jail because Johnny testified against him in court.
3: Yeah. I mean, he deserved to. That yeah. was, <laughs> he almost killed Johnny Ramone. He almost killed him. Now <laughs> well, following Johnny's recovery the Ramones wisely decided to quit chasing the elusive hit single and instead settled into what made them great in the first place playing harder and faster than anyone else. So, they brought back Tommy Ramone along with Ed Stasium to produce a comeback album of sorts. That return to form was called Too Tough to Die. Dee, Dee singing, did a hell of a fucking job.
2: Yeah. Dee, Dee and Johnny uh, wrote that song together. Nice. Yeah, Johnny finally got credit on a few of those songs because he started taking over creatively at this point. You know, because Joey is partying. Yeah. Dee parting partying even harder. And Richie's just the new guy. Although he did get to write one song on the album. But uh, the, the songs, the, the music was uh, creatively like a, a lot more harder and faster. It's exactly the way Johnny wanted it to be.
3: Yeah. No, they fucking killed it. I mean, Too Tough to Die, of course. I mean, it's... Johnny, too tough to, to die. die. Yeah. <laughs> he did not die. <laughs> and this was their return. Like, they brought Tommy Ramone back. Like, Tommy Ramone, he didn't play drums, but he came back as producer. They brought Ed Stacian back. It's like a fuck it. it's a return to their roots. It's a return to form. And it's fucking great.
2: And they also got uh, Daniel Ray, which is like an old friend of theirs. Uh, The guy from, uh, uh, he was in a band called Shrapnel that opened for the Ramones like dozens of times. He started helping out with the songwriting a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, He would collaborate with the guys individually and help out any way he could. And he was very important. Eventually, he would like go on to produce like three of their later albums. So he was always there with them, kind of helping out, especially with Didi coming up with like songs like every day, all the time. Joey's partying a little bit too much. so He's struggling a little bit. He needs help from Daniel. So, luckily, thank God God for Daniel Ray. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, this uh, this album has some classic fucking Ramon songs that were in their live repertoire for years. You know, songs like Mama's Boy. Jordan,
5: keep a secret, got a concrete skull. You couldn't shut up. You're an imbecile. You're an ugly dog. There's nothing to give. You couldn't shut up. You had a bad. Couldn't hold your tongue, you were just too young
3: Was saw guitar <laughs> like, that's really the return of like the rough ripping fucking guitar but you know but even though you know it had that rough edge it was fucking hard there was still a really fucking good pop song on there Howlin' at the Moon <laughs> don't know how that song wasn't a hit
2: that song is perfect it's perfect what you were talking about before with the throwback old-fashioned bringing it into the 80s Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics uh, produced that that track no shit I didn't know that yeah
3: yeah I mean it it was one of those things where it's like it was still the Ramones it had a modern feel to it like it it sounds like it's from 1984 definitely I mean it's got that fucking feel and somehow missed yet again why (laughs) not I don't know. Maybe it's it's us. Maybe it's me and you.
1: The thing about Too Tough to Die is
3: it really was the last truly solid Ramones album. Their follow-up, Animal Boy, it's just sort of okay. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, Except, of course, for quite possibly the best anti-Ronald Reagan punk song (laughs) of the 80s, Bonzo Goes to Bitburg. There's a lot of competition for the best anti-Reagan song of the 80s. Really? Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's Reagan Youth, there's DOA, there's Crisis of Conformity, there's Dead Kennedys. They all wrote oh, anti-Reagan yeah. songs. Uh, but yeah, the Ramones, I don't know, they did it better than anyone.
2: Well, you know, it was changed on the album to uh, My Brain is Hanging Upside Down because no one can talk about Johnny's favorite president like that. <laughs> <laughs> no one.
3: Yep, yep. Remember, never forget Johnny Ramone. Die, he voted for Nixon. Yeah. Like, he was always a diehard Republican. Mm -hmm. So by 1987, the band was starting to drift. Disputes about t-shirt sales were wearing on Richie, Joey was getting more interested in left-wing politics, and Johnny stayed in the band with all the enthusiasm of a fucking sanitation worker counting down the days to retirement. (laughs) As far as Dee Dee went, 1987 was the year he discovered rap music. Or at the very least, it was the year that he decided... He wanted to try it too. Baffling everyone, Dee Dee released a single under the name Dee Dee King called Funky Man.
5: Alarm clock ringing, it's time to get up It's time to do that funky strut I'm a funky man, I got funky bones above my name is Diddy Ramone. Well, let me tell you about myself. I play the bass in a punk rock band. been all over the world, even to Japan, and nothing can surprise me, man. I've seen it all. I had a ball. Someone should make a DD, double, alright.
2: I've seen enough.
3: (laughs) You seem to forget that uh, one uh, essential characteristic of rap music, which is rhyming.
2: Yes. (laughs) He just looked at the Beastie Boys and said, I can do that. Well, Didi kind of got into a phase, yes. let's say this, uh, wearing jumpsuits, uh, you know, chains, several watches on one arm, and then he'd go up to the band and go, yo, what's up? <laughs> and then Ramones would go, Didi, you're a white guy from Queens, just <laughs> knock it off. Stop it. I know <laughs> And Daniel Ray helped him as best as he could In writing with Dee Dee With the songs I mean he's just like I don't know what I'm doing You don't know what you're doing <laughs> And even Richie Richie Ramon tried too They they all helped
3: I mean the, the cover to the single Like even the, the person who uh, wrote like Drew the cover Like did the art for the cover of the single the Same dude who did the art For all the Tom Tom Club albums Like he had Every friend was trying to encourage him Yeah <laughs>
2: And that's the thing A lot of Dee Dee's friends When they're asked about that time And that period in his life All they could say was He looks like he's having fun <laughs> And you know what Isn't that the point Lassim Lassim la <laughs> Ishtar It's As long as you're having fun
3: As long as he's enjoying himself So around the time that Dee Dee recorded his first single Richie finally had enough Of not getting his share of the merch And left the band And after the Ramones played two gigs with Clem Burke of Blondie, going under the name Elvis Ramone...
2: Oh yes, Elvis, this is only temporary Ramone.
3: (laughs) (laughs) They brought Marky back into the fold. Now the Ramones by this point were an established part of the American rock scene, and it was only natural that they'd have a famous fan or two. That's how the Ramones ended up writing and recording the theme song to Stephen King's Pet Cemetery.
5: In the off with the steamboat In goblins and waololos Come at the ground line making a sound, the smell of death is all around And at night when the cold wind blows, no one cares, nobody knows I don't wanna be buried in a big cemetery addicted to the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape Moulders and fangs that are picking up bones Spirits mourning among the tombstones And at night when the moon is bright Someone cries something ain't right I don't want to be buried In a pet cemetery
3: Quite possibly the best song to come from a horror movie. Best original song. I'm just saying it. I'm saying it right now. I know it's controversial, but I'm saying it. It's better than Dream Warriors.
2: It's funny because it was nominated for a Razzie for worst original song that year.
3: (laughs) Ah, Fuck the Razzies.
2: Yeah, fuck the Razzies. Uh, So as Marky tells it in his autobiography, Stephen King invited the band to his house in Bangor, Maine for dinner in 1988. Yeah. They hung out in his basement, and there he showed him his copy of Pet Cemetery that they were making a film out of in a few weeks. Yeah. You know, as, a, as we all know, it's about a graveyard where pets are resurrected from the dead if they're. If they're buried there yeah, and uh, but they come back a little evil
3: yes always a little evil no fail you know like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah
2: and uh, D.D. Dee Dee took the book and went through it and within an hour he had scribbled a bunch of notes on a piece of paper and bam there's the song
3: that's it, yep. that's, that, it. That, that's it because Stephen King was a gigantic Ramones fan
2: yes but Stephen King also calls bullshit on this story <laughs> he said that's not how it happened at all they never even came to my house I mean we had dinner And the funny thing is that when uh, he got a call about it from Marky Ramon's publisher when he was publishing his autobiography, Stephen King said, like, you know what? Leave it in. Print the legend. Yep. Print the legend.
3: Print the legend. Absolutely. So
2: what really happens, they actually met in November of 1982 when they played in Bangor, Maine, with Cheap Trick for a show that Stephen King himself promoted. Ah. Yeah. Marky was still drunk at this time, so maybe that's why he doesn't remember this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then several years later, when they're making the movie, Gary Kerr was asked by a producer from uh, the Pet Cemetery movie uh, if the Ramones could record a song on it. So they sent a script to Dee Dee to read. But he's like, I'm not going to read all this. Just tell me what it's about and I'll figure it out. (laughs) And he did. Yeah. He showed up the next day with the song. Daniel Ray helped write the music while Dee Dee put together the lyrics himself.
3: Yeah. And it's a fucking great. I mean, it really like the I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. I don't want to live my life again. That's a fucking great lyric. Like it was so, a hit. It was it was the Ramones' biggest hit. Yeah. In America, like <laughs> it reached pretty high on the fucking pop t- or on the rock charts.
2: Yeah, it was on the modern rock yeah. charts. Or something. I think it was like number four.
3: Yeah, number four on the modern. Yeah, it was fucking. It was the Ramones' biggest hit. <laughs> amazingly, and it was really. I mean, it was the last really great like Ramones original, and it was also the last great D. D. Ramones story. Or at least the last great story with Dee Dee as a Ramon. In July of 1989, Dee Dee left the Ramones in what some members peg as an unfortunate midlife crisis.
2: Yeah, he was just tired of being the fuck up, especially being dictated like what to do. Like every day somebody was telling him what to do. Johnny was telling him, Gary, Monty, his wife Vera, who he broke up with at this time. He just he wanted control over his life and to expand his like creative songwriting skills, which is why he released the D.D. King album Standing in the Spotlight.
3: It's uh, this is what D.D. Dee Dee left the Ramones for.
0: <laughs> it's
5: time to rock. It's time to rap. It's time for the mashed potato attack. It's the latest. It's the greatest. Mashed potato. Well, I drive a Mercedes. I like to impress the ladies. And knock out the homeboy too. This ain't the twist or the boogaloo. The mashed potato.
3: That's the master of hip hop.
2: How he managed to rope in uh, Debbie Harry for that, I'll never know.
3: <laughs> that was Debbie Harry singing back up. Yes! <laughs> Fucking Chris Stein playing guitar on another I track. No! Like, I they know. were all just trying to be so encouraging.
2: I know. <laughs> but the one good thing is that he agreed to still write songs for the remotes.
3: Yeah so there was that at the very least you <laughs> yeah, know but... the, mo-
2: the best part of Dee Dee really
3: <laughs> but yeah that was that was the lead off track it's called Mashed Potato Time
4: yeah
2: it's it- a cover
3: yeah <laughs> except for you know being the king of hip hop
2: yeah. yeah
3: so to replace Dee Dee the Ramones auditioned no less than 70 bass players and eventually decided on a 23 year old kid fresh out of the marines named Chris Ward who eventually came to be known as C.J. Ramon.
2: Yeah, C.J. was a huge Ramones fan. He'd see them play live like 15, 20 times. The only problem was that C.J. went AWOL yeah. during his time in the Marines. AWOL meaning, nah, this I actually knew, but I didn't know what it really meant, mm-hmm. absent without official leave, Yep. which means he did not wait to get discharged.
3: He was committing a crime.
2: Yes, he got arrested. He had to spend a month in the brig. <laughs> he had to call up Johnny, scary Johnny. He had to call him off. <laughs> <up. laughs> And say, I'm sorry about this. And Johnny told him, just do your time and the job will be here when you get back.
3: Yeah, because Johnny was totally down with having a Marine because John, remember, Johnny ran everything with military precision.
2: Yeah, and CJ would take orders. Yeah. That was perfect. So CJ, did he played his first show, September 4th, 1989, for a Jerry Lewis telethon.
3: (laughs) And it's pretty cool. Like, uh, it's on YouTube.
2: He looks so awkward. (laughs) He's like, don't mess up. Don't mess up. Don't mess up. But I mean, uh, of course, of course, you know, you're going to be awkward. But eventually he became part of the band.
3: Yeah, I mean, he really did. I mean, according to the rest of the band, like CJ gave the Ramones another 10 years you know and although the band never really wrote like a truly great original song with CJ you probably know CJ best from delivering this line right here <laughs>
5: Go to hell, you old bastard.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Fucking great, CJ. Did a hell of a job.
2: Yeah, they got the cameo in The Simpsons. Uh, Yeah, 1993, uh, the the episode Rosebud.
3: It's uh, one of the best episodes of the season.
2: They sing happy birthday to Mr. Burns, and Mr. (laughs) Burns then tells Smithers to have the Rolling Stones killed. It's great.
3: Let's just listen. Let's, Let's just fucking listen to it. Everyone wants to hear it.
2: Yeah.
5: I'd just like to say this gig sucks. Hey, up your Springfield. One, two, three, four. hell you old bastard.
3: (laughs) And if you watch it again one thing that I noticed back in the old days when I was watching is that when the curtains come down on the Ramones Mr. Burns is shaking. (laughs) (laughs) He's trembling like a very scared old man. (laughs) And of course Marky delivers the line. Hey
2: I
1: think they liked
2: us.
3: (laughs) Hey ho let's go. (laughs) Hey ho. Let's go. (laughs) Appearances on the Ramones notwithstanding, the Ramones finally settled into the career they were given rather than the one that they felt like they'd earned. See, the Ramones always were and always would make their living on touring and merch. And the big time as they wanted it just wasn't in the cards. But a funny thing happened when the Ramones finally stopped trying. In 1991, the idea of punk finally broke in America when Nirvana hit number one in the charts. And when Nirvana broke, Kurt Cobain, the biggest musician in the world, had a hell of a lot of nice things to say about the Ramones. So did Soundgarden. So did a lot of these other big grunge bands. Then in 1994, capital P-punk fucking exploded when Ramones Acolytes Green Day sold 9 million copies of their breakout album, Dookie.
2: definitely one of those nine million people oh yeah i bought green day dookie was my first punk album when i was 11 years old and yes. then it it then it spread
3: same here it like green day was i mean our generation's introduction to punk yeah it was the it was the first punk album we all fucking owned yeah. uh, <laughs> and you know green day's success like it irked the ramones a little bit
2: especially joey
3: It really, it it, it, it definitely irked Joey. But then they came to accept it. Like, they came to accept, like, okay, it wasn't us. You know, punk broke. That's good. That's great. But it wasn't us.
2: And how great that we helped them. (laughs) That's fantastic.
3: Yeah, and, you know, the the fucking Green Day wouldn't be there without the Ramones. Nirvana wouldn't have been there without the Ramones. Soundgarden wouldn't have been there without the Ramones. And so the Ramones kind of had to look around and say, like, okay, so we didn't hit it big like we always wanted to. Somebody did. We at least inspired the guys that did. But even before Green Day hit big worldwide, the Ramones found where their biggest audience truly was. In 1994, the Ramones were the third biggest rock group in South America behind Guns N' Roses and Metallica, even beating out the Rolling Stones in ticket sales.
2: Los Ramones. (laughs) Hey, Los Ramones! Los Ramones! (laughs) By the 90s, they were huge in South America. I know! (laughs) (laughs) They were playing stadiums, like 30,000 seat places. In one show in Buenos Aires, they played for 52,000 people. Yeah. Can you imagine? That's insane.
3: I mean, 52,000 people all loving it.
2: They became the Beatles in Latin America. Like Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Chile. Each member of the band needed security guards. Fans would jump on them and tear off the guy's shirts, touch their hair. <laughs> and fans would gather around airports and their hotels that they would stay at. Or, Joey would love to do the thing where he'd open the door out the balcony and it would be like roaring screams like, ah! <laughs> And then he'd close it, silence, and he'd open, ah! <laughs> he loved that. It, just, it was just a funny thing. They even had police escorts in Brazil. Yeah, that's insane. Uh,
3: it, it really cannot be overstated how popular the Ramones were in South America. and like, and it started around like '88, somewhere around there, like mid to late '80s.
2: Yeah, it was around '88 actually, because uh, Ramones Mania was released in '88, and that went gold.
3: Ramones Mania was like a, a 30 song compilation. Yeah, but, you know, of uh, it was a, a retrospective of the Ramones' career.
2: And Mondo Bizarro also went gold there, so yeah, they were huge.
3: Yeah, they were absolutely gigantic. Yeah, by 1994, like to say that they were the third biggest band behind Guns N' Roses and Metallica, like if you weren't around in the early to mid 90s, like I cannot over again using this word, I can't overstate how big Guns N' Roses and Metallica were. Like they were selling out gigantic venues of, you know, they were selling out stadiums, huge stadiums in every country in the fucking world where live music was being played. And to be third behind those two guys was fucking huge. And to be bigger than the Rolling Stones. no it wasn't like the Rolling Stones were slouches in the nineties. Like they had hits <laughs> Yeah, they in, did. The, in the nineties. But even though the Ramones were bigger than ever in South America, the band was tragically breaking down in a very real very physical way. As we've said, Joey Ramone had health problems all his life, but he would still sobered up by the time the 90s came. He'd had an unfortunate accident where he had gotten drunk and fell off a stage.
2: Oh, that's right, yeah. But in
3: 1995, Joey was diagnosed with incurable lymphatic cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which he kept a secret from the rest of the band. But even though he kept it a secret, the Ramones still decided to pack it up. And released their final album, Adios Amigos, in
5: 1995. When I'm alive in my fitting I don't want to do. grow Nothing ever since I turned around. The price of you pay. I don't want to grow up I don't ever want to be that way And I don't want to grow up Seems that folks Turn into things That they never want The only thing To live for is to get I'm gonna put a hole In my TV set I don't want to grow up Open up The medicine chest I don't want to grow
3: <laughs> About a year after that album was released The Ramones played their final show At the Hollywood Palace in Los Angeles On August 6, 1996 And I'll agree with CJ When he said it was kind of ludicrous That a New York band should play their last show in LA
2: I know right
3: well a lot of them had moved to LA at that point yeah. I think they just didn't want to take the fucking plane ride
2: yeah. <laughs> it was it was a big blowout event you know the show I mean there were a lot of guests like uh, Lars and Tim from uh, Rancid hey, that's yeah that's cool I love Rancid. Yeah, and they played on, uh, 53rd and 3rd with the band uh, Soundgarden was there for Beat on the Brat Eddie Vedder wore the pinhead mask <laughs> Lemmy was there <laughs> Dee came hey yeah he sang Love Kills He's saying it wrong, but, but 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 he got there. He, he was there. Yeah. Um, it was filmed and recorded for uh, We're Out of Here. And uh, after that, it was all done. They were all packed up. No hugs or anything. They all just kind of just went home.
3: Yeah, the legend is that uh, Johnny handed his guitar to somebody on the way out and said- to
2: Eddie Vedder. Yeah,
3: handed it to Eddie Vedder and said, I don't need this anymore. Uh, but- now he sold that guitar for a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> That's not true. It's a great story, but no, he he sold he sold that for a lot of money. Uh but he was done. Yeah. You know? He was a, he, he was, it was like he'd always said it was a job and yeah. Johnny Ramone he retired. And after he retired, he was just fucking done. And when Joey was diagnosed with cancer, he wasn't supposed to last very long. And even so, he fought the disease for eight years when he was only supposed to survive for three, but still passed away on April 15th, 2001. Amazingly, the rift between Johnny and Joey was never healed, and Johnny refused to call Joey even when he knew Joey's death was certain. He said, we're not friends. He's like, why am I going to pretend to be friends at the the end? He's like, why why am I going to pretend to do that? But reportedly, Johnny regretted it. He wanted it. He said he, he said after Joey died, he said I, I should have called you know, he, yeah. he said I was depressed for about a week. <laughs> which, yeah. is, which, which is which is a lot for Johnny. Yeah,
2: it's asking yeah.
3: Yeah, uh, but it, it's sad, you know. He he never he never called him up. They didn't talk. About a year after Joey's death, Sanctuary Records released Joey's first and only solo album, Don't Worry About Me, which featured Joey's last and possibly best cover, What a Wonderful World. We'll <laughs> be Turned in one hell of a vocal performance yeah, at the end of his life. Really, it was the last thing. Well, a month later, the Ramones were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which would have tickled Joey Pink. It was, in fact, one of his last wishes. Yeah. However, in true Ramone style, the ceremony was not without its own petty conflicts.
2: Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the Ramones were inducted on March eighteenth, two thousand two. Johnny sat at a different table from Joey's mom and Mickey, Joey's brother, to avoid them. He, he didn't even make eye contact with them. They all had to sit in different tables.
3: Well, Johnny and Mickey have their own...
2: They have their own.
3: They have their own thing.
2: And so does Marky and Mickey. It's just a lot.
3: <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with, yeah.
2: And for the speech, Tommy thanked Monty Melnick, Arturo Vega, Hilly Crystal. I'm doing credits right now. <laughs> Tony Bon Jovi, Ed Stasium, Phil Spector. Daniel Ray, and C.J. Ramon. Tommy said something sweet, actually. He said, we really loved each other, even when we weren't acting civil. Yeah. We were truly brothers. It means a lot, but it really means everything to Joey. Which I thought was just, it it was touching. It was beautiful.
3: It's very touching.
2: And Johnny, you know, he thanked Seymour Stein, Danny Fields, Gary as well, uh, the fans, and God bless President Bush, and God bless America.
3: (laughs) That's how Johnny ended his fucking speech. God bless President Bush and God bless the United States of America. It's like
2: not the time, not the time, not the, place.
3: Not the time. Yeah, it's early two thousands. Not not the time.
2: And Marky thanked Johnny for asking him to join the band, and he thanked Tommy for helping him out to duplicate his style. And Dee Dee thanked himself, <laughs> himself and himself only.
3: And CJ wasn't even invited.
2: No, he didn't even get a ticket. Yeah, he didn't it's get so a ticket. Shitty.
3: He he didn't get to go. It was really fucking shitty.
2: And once they all walked out after the speech, they all sat down with their statues. Uh, they realized once they, were, they got to the table that there was still one statue still left on the podium. And they figured, oh, it must be Joey's. So they got an assistant to grab it and give it to Joey's mom. But the statue, this, all the statues were already engraved, and it said, Didi Ramon on it. <laughs> And Didi had Johnny's statue. And Tommy and Marky checked theirs, and oh, they had theirs right. So that meant Johnny had Joey's. (laughs) Marky said that that alone was worth the trip to the induction ceremony. (laughs) So Joey got one more on him. Good on ya.
3: But following the induction ceremony, it seemed as if something wouldn't let the original Ramon survive without the other three. A few months after the Hall of Fame ceremony, Dee died of a heroin overdose. Hmm. He had never stopped using heroin. Yeah. And somehow, that was the time. Then in 2004, Johnny died after a five-year battle with prostate cancer. It was just boom, 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 yeah. all within about three years of each other. And he was followed 10 years later by Tommy, who died in 2014 of bile duct cancer. Oy. Sounds fucking awful. The only ones left now are Richie, CJ, and amazingly, Marky, who looks surprisingly good. He looks great. He looks great. (laughs) (laughs) And he, you know, just uh, recently released what you said uh, was the best book written by a former Ramon.
2: It's my favorite book written my by <laughs> I'm not saying it's the best because there are as you know there are some discrepancies but it is just the most entertaining and he I mean remember it took him five years to write this book <laughs>
3: well the, the, what we keep referencing with that <laughs> is when uh, when our book the last book on the left was, was published uh, the guys put together a very nice uh, cameo compilation uh, for me uh, that featured a lot of 90 Day Fiancé stars <laughs> (laughs) Uh, And at the very end had Marky Ramon saying congratulations for writing a book. And of course, like he fucking he flexed on me. You know, (laughs) he's like, I wrote a book recently. (laughs) It was 400 pages. It took me five years to write. <laughs> he's like, fuck, is Mark Ramon flex on me for how many fucking pages his book has that has a hundred more than mine? <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, Marcus Pox, is it, is it on? Is, did I, <laughs> do I do it now? Okay. Hey, Marcus Pox, I also wrote a book, you Dumb asshole! <laughs> I'm kidding. Marky Ramone is great, and his book is great.
3: It's great, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, from from what Travis, who uh, our you know assistant and producer who uh, tracked down all these people, he said Marky Ramone is very slippery uh, to get a hold of. And of course, Marky ended the, his video with, "Hey ho, let's Let go." go. <laughs> very tired of saying it. <laughs> As far as the legacy of the Ramones goes, though, the recognition that they always wanted finally came. Whether it's on a classic rock station, or a movie soundtrack, or a commercial, it's damn near impossible for someone in this day and age to have never heard a Ramones song. Now, it's a foregone conclusion as to whether or not the Ramones have a place in rock and roll history. In fact, they're so essential to the whole thing that it's actually not really quote-unquote cool anymore ...to admit that you still love the Ramones.
2: Who says this?
3: <laughs> Dickheads. Yes. Strangely, the Ramones are now seen as somewhat a part of the establishment, almost corny. And I can see how some of you who are more into hardcore punk can look at the Ramones and say, that shit's for kids. And looking back through the prism of 45 years of punk and alternative in indie, it's easy to dismiss the Ramones as simplistic... But what lies inside of that simplicity is nothing short of a revolution. Even though the Ramones never got the hit single they wanted, and even though much of their music was built on what came before, their music is still teaching generation after generation how to play guitar, how to play drums, and how to sing almost half a century after their debut. But their most important lesson is this. Anyone can play music, and anyone can create art. Just so long as you've got the passion and the will. And even if you don't make it big, you never know who you're going to inspire along the way. And the person you inspire just might end up changing
5: the world.
2: Wow. Funky man. <laughs> <F-f-f-f-f> <laughs> funky
5: man. <laughs> <F-f-f-f-f-f-f-f-f> funky. <laughs> funky.
2: No, but really, seriously, if you want to do hip-hop, to do hip-hop. Yeah, if you it's want fine. to. Do, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Take a chance,
3: man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was terrible, but.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it's really more Warner Brothers' fault for giving him money. <laughs> so it's not Dee Dee's fault for trying to make music, because that's the thing. You can make whatever the hell you want to make.
3: You really can. And that's the thing. Is the Ramones were making what they wanted to make at every point. You know, Even if they did have a goal at times, even if they did have an agenda at times, like we're going to make a hit record, we're going to make it big, they were still the Ramones. And maybe that was their fatal flaw. Maybe the fatal flaw was that they couldn't be anything other than the Ramones, and the public just didn't want the Ramones. They didn't at that time, at least. I mean, now, Now. uh, now Blitzkrieg Bop was on a fucking Super Bowl commercial. Uh, you know, the GoPro commercial. I yes. mean, it, it's fucking everywhere. Like the Ramones are everywhere. Like when I drive around listening to fucking the, Cla- the New York Classic Rock stations, like Blitzkrieg Bop comes on. Like these, I've heard I want to be sedated on Classic Rock before. You know, like they are fucking everywhere. Everyone knows the Ramones. But just because everybody knows them now does not mean that they aren't still fucking great
2: yes oh my god what a series oh my god (laughs) we spent so many hours this is amazing i can't believe we. i never thought we'd be at the end
3: (laughs) (laughs) and here we are thank you very much everybody for uh taking this trip uh through the wonderful world of the ramones with us
2: yes thank you so much and also if you're doing something really crazy and so weird. And you want to send it to us, uh, you totally can. And I'm talking about music.
3: Yeah. <laughs> or art. If you were making some weird, crazy shit.
2: Oh, yeah. Anything.
3: Yeah, yeah. Fucking, you know, we, we're on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Marcus Parks on both.
2: And I'm on uh, Carolina Danger Hidalgo, I think it is. Uh, but also, uh, you know, if you're in a band or you're a musician or just starting out or you've been doing it for decades, uh, send an email. With an attachment of you, of your song. Yeah, yeah. Or, or send, your album on dogs in space at gmail.com.
3: Yeah. If you yeah, send us a, a link to your Spotify profile or your bandcamp profile or anything. Whatever. Yeah, just send it to us. We've got still we're still getting so many submissions. Yes. And they're I've been fucking go- great. Yeah,
2: I've been going through them and they're they're great.
3: Yeah, they're so amazing. And for this week's band, we're going fucking punk. Yeah. On <laughs> we're going fucking punk punk. This band is called Long Knife. The album is Sewers of Babylon, where it's an EP. It's a fucking great EP. It's really fucking solid. Uh, But we're going to go for a song called Bastards of Bedlam. It's less than a minute. They
2: really know how to title things.
3: They really fucking do. No, listen to Sewers of the Tower, Only a Reflection, Citadel, Bastards of Bedlam. Uh, Yeah, fucking love this song. Uh, This band is fucking great. They're out of Portland. Uh, they got a few releases. If you fucking if you love that 80s American hardcore, fucking check out Long Knife. Cool. So enjoy it, everybody.
2: Goodbye. Thank you.
3: Goodbye. <laughs>